one of the things I was thinking was like, what could AI do all pretty much immediately that would make doctoring so much better? And I realized all the doctors that I know hate the paperwork of doctoring. Yep, right? exactly. Yeah, you're 100% right. Like, if you look at like Ivan Illich, right? He felt that all medicalization was bad. Clearly not all medicalization is bad, right? You mm -hmm. could say male pattern baldness. We medicalized that. Mm -hmm. 80 years ago, you go bald. That's it. Like my hairline's receding. And you could also even say the, the cure for baldness is shaving your head, going to the gym and getting some badass tattoos. Yeah. That is also a cure That's for baldness. That's what my dad did. He got an earring, he shaved his head, and grew a goatee. That was his solution to going bald at age 25. People would just collect so much data about themselves, and computers would be able to understand it in a meaningful way that would help predict and prevent disease. I think that's a not uncommon belief in Silicon Valley. Two years ago, we had this big problem in society, right? There was a virus that somehow spread around the world, and then the world went insane. How would you describe what we learned from the COVID-19 epidemic? Welcome to Scott Carney Investigates. I am having the great honor now to speak with my good friend, Adam Rodman, who is the host of the epically awesome and super nerdy podcast called Bedside Rounds, which I am sure you already listen to and subscribe to. And if you don't, you're gonna do that right now. Um, Adam is one of, I mean, he's one of the smartest guys I know when it comes to the questions of uh, the history of medicine, the nature of diagnosis, artificial intelligence. And sometimes we've walked around parks in Boston and just talked about the general madness of medicine. Uh, and today, it's going to be a pretty exciting podcast because Adam is sitting in his kid's room in Boston with a load of poopy diapers behind him and, uh, and, and displaying his academic credentials. And we are going to talk about the, well, I think we're going to start, this could go in a lot of different directions, but we're going to start uh, by talking about um, the most important and most central question in medicine ever asked, which is Adam Rodman, Harvard doctor, what is a disease? Oh, oh you start with the very easy questions, right? <laughs> well, act, uh, let me throw answer your question with a question, uh, Scott. Why does it why does it matter to you what the definition of a disease is? Oh, thank you for asking, Adam Rodman. Um, yeah. So why is because as a patient, as somebody who is a human on Earth, sometimes I have these things that don't make me feel right. The, these things that maybe you could call them symptoms. And I think to myself, I want these symptoms fixed by some sort of savant in a white lab coat, and only he or my shaman can help me. Yeah, so so there is no, as I assume why you asked this question, there is no easy answer to what is a disease. Uh, there is a consensus definition, which is any deviation from nor a normal state of health, right? So anything that causes any sort of disease of a deviation from normal, of course, in order to answer that, you have to have a working definition of what normal health is, which we do not, right. uh, a culturally mm -hmm. appropriate definition of normal health. And then you have to have the... Um, and a nosology, you have to have a division of disease. At what point have you gone over a line where mm -hmm. something goes from normal to disease? So the reason that we, that I, I think it's a, it's a great question that doesn't have an easy answer is that presupposing disease means you have to draw categories somewhere. And you also mm -hmm. have to define what normal is versus what abnormal is. 
disease. So uh, to get to go a little meta on the concept of a disease is that there are pathophysiological changes. So there's changes that happen in our body. Sometimes those cause distress to people. Increasingly, I mean, if you look at precision medicine and maybe functional medicine, they might not cause distress to people now, but perhaps will in the future. And doctors do the best job, and not just doctors, uh, scientists, physiologists, all sorts of people do the best job that we can, or sometimes we do a poor job, of trying to do meaningful categories around the reality, right? We try to, mm-hmm. nosology is, is drawing categories around diseases in order to hopefully make people's lives better. Is that, is that a yeah, fair I, definition? I think that's great. And, and, and the, the thing for me as a patient uh, and occasional pontificator, <laughs> the thing that, that, that mostly matters to me is this question of distress, right? Because it does seem that the nature of disease um, the way we approach disease, and you use this word nosology a lot. Like if you listen to bedside rounds, <laughs> you use lots of big words, and one of them is nosology, which yeah, it means categories of disease, how we think about stuff. And you're you're forbidden from using that word in this podcast. If you want to forbid me from using nosology and epistemology, you want me to just take those two yeah. off the table right yeah. now? Yeah, and ontological. If we can throw uh, I that can't one say out, it's all right. I wasn't well. going to say ontological. <laughs> um, but the the. The thing is, as a patient, I have um, uh, the reason I go to a doctor is because there's something I feel is wrong. And sometimes the thing that I feel is wrong is not. It's just like some random anxiety that I have. It's hypochondria. It's like it's whatever. And sometimes I have the black death and I'm going to spread it to the entire population around me. And, and, and And doctors intercede. In that in that problem, and hope to come up with some sort of I guess you could say objective measure. But you know, one of the things that fascinates me is like the very nature of how we pathologize the human body has changed so dramatically. Not only in the last two thousand years, or you know, going back to Hippocrates and Galen, but like even in the last like thirty years, even the in whole the last idea. Years, there, there have been changes within the last year in disease categories. Yeah. So it's something that is dynamic that's happening all the time. Yeah. So, so when I ask you what, like what a disease is now, like I have this book. So my, uh, I, I used to go to a, um, a, a DO, an osteopath, yeah. right. Who is a functional medicine doctor. And she gave me this book called like the history, like functional medicine. It's a textbook about, it's just called functional medicine. So it's about functional medicine and functional medicine is fascinating because what they do, it's sort of this midpoint between the wellness world and the hard med, hard whatever we want to call science, the people, what you guys do at Harvard. It's like biomedicine sort of the is a sociologic term. Biomedicine, love it. Biomedicine versus wellness and functional medicine sort of sits in the middle. And what they do is they test you. They test every level of the stuff of the levels in your body: the testosterones, the hormones, the ghrelin, the the things that I can't don't even know what they are. And they have these huge panels of stuff. And when those panels don't look right. And, and that is a big question. What does look right mean? They say you have a disease and then they treat your panels and not the patient. I feel like this is, I mean, it's been developing for like 30, 40 years, whenever functional medicine showed up. Um, but how is this changing what you do as a doctor and how you think about illness? So the question in particular, you mean the rise of functional medicine and the increase of data, right? Is, is that what you're getting at? The increase of these data points that we didn't have 30, 40 years yeah. ago? Yeah, yeah or, in in defining disease. Yeah. yeah. Well, and and this this gets into what I'm really excited about because let's even go beyond the panels of of hormones that you might measure. 
What about wearables? What about people with Apple Watch? Apple Watches, they're gonna all this dynamic information. Uh, now we have skin glucometers. Soon there'll be like contact lenses that you can put on that measure your blood sugar throughout the day. There are people in Silicon Valley, a lot of them who wear uh, like a Dexcom right now. So a sugar monitor on their skin and they monitor their blood sugar level throughout, throughout the day with the hope mm -hmm. that they gain some insight into your health. And the amount of like to, to data, this is actually funny. The words data uh, was not used in medicine until the 1970s and really 1980s. Like we never talked about oh, wow. data. And now we talk, you even, we talk about clinical data all the time. So there are now these weird intersections. And I think functional medicine is an interesting example. Uh, wearables are an interesting example where the amount of data is so high. And as you know, when you mm -hmm. go to a, a functional medicine doctor, you have this question, you're like, okay, my ghrelin was a little bit low today. Does that mean anything? Is it predictive in any manner? And the mm -hmm. answer that we have right now is we don't know, but we're reaching a point mm -hmm. technologically where I think we're going to be able to get some of those insights in a way that can uh, realize some of the hopes that uh, functional medicine doctors have had, right? To get To get actual insights into how you're feeling and more importantly, what changes you might make to make yourself feel better based on measures in the human body at any given time. And I have examples of that uh, in biomedicine, but th those are, I think that's what you're getting at, right? Yeah, no, that's, th I mean, yes, that is exactly what I'm getting at. And I think the thing that to me is so fascinating is I am generally skeptical of things that aren't my sensory experience, right? Like when I, I recently got like a blood panel, you know, and uh, my Billy Rubin, Bill Rubin has, was two points outside of the normal range. And I'm like, what does that mean? What is my liver doing? Uh, how, am I going to die? Do I have hepatitis? Like these are the, the questions. Uh, and it, I don't think it actually means anything. I think that, that it's one level in a bunch of levels, but it, it may, when you see that and you see a, a data point is out of range, uh, it makes you feel as if you're diseased, you're diseased. Uh, and, and that brings in this whole concept, of like the nocebo effect, right. And the placebo effect, which I talk about on this channel all the time, because those are my two, those are the two biggest well, the, the nocebo effect in particular is so fascinating, right? The fact that people can have sepsis-like syndromes from placebos, that doesn't really make sense, but the human mind is amazing. All right, wait, let's just, let's drill into that for a second. Yeah. Sepsis is when you've got some leaking going on and an infection in your, like not in your blood, it's in the other stuff, Right. Am I right? Or is it in your blood? It might be in your no, blood. No, no, no. So yeah, sepsis, you're right. Sepsis is a dysregulation of the body's uh, immune system to infection. In uh, in effect, like the way that doctors think about sepsis is we don't, we want to identify it early because we can treat it and make a difference. So we like to talk about different, and I won't get into the details, but we like to look at different signs to identify it early. So mm -hmm. it makes more sense when we're talking about sepsis. We may not even 100% know there's an infection yet. It's that we're worried about mm -hmm. it. And the, the case I think you talked about is the, the guy who was on a, a placebo for an antidepressant and came in meeting all the clinical criteria for sepsis until they unblinded his, um, unblinded, you know, the study drug that he was on, it was the placebo. And then he immediately improved after that. Right. That's a famous, that's a really famous case. I was like, it was 10, 15 years ago, yeah, yeah. uh, where, and I didn't know, I didn't realize that that was the, that he presented with sepsis. I thought he was just like low blood pressure was about to pass out, but the, uh, that, that is the clinical def clinical presentation of sepsis. Yeah. This is getting into the weeds, but he met the reason the paper is such a big deal is he met the criteria for like severe sepsis, uh, which is what they were worried about. Uh, okay. 
Um, you would not think that right. a nocebo effect could do that to you, right? Yeah, it's the power of, I mean, you could say it's the power of the mind. Um, there was another case that I recently uh, read about where a construction worker fell off a house and landed into, uh, and, and, and his foot came down in a boot on a, on a wooden plank. And the, the, the nail went right through the top of the shoe and he like screaming in pain. It was, and then they, they rushed him to the hospital and, you know, it, he was like out of control pain. And then when they cut the boot off, they found that the, the nail had actually gone between his toes, So it actually hadn't, it actually hadn't uh, pierced the skin. Yeah, pierced but, because the, and, and, but because he'd seen it, right? Because he'd seen the nail come out of the top of his shoe, he assumed, his brain assumed that there was pain and it manifested that pain. Uh, and this was on, uh, this was on Steve Magnus's uh, Instagram profile. So I, I didn't read the clinical paper. I, I got, I get my medical information off Instagram, but I, I generally think Steve Magnus is a decent, decent sort. Uh, and, and that brings me into like thinking about like phantom limb syndrome, where you have pain, where you don't even have the limb and your brain is transmitting this information. It all seems sort of interconnected. Oh, or, uh, I mean, it, I do this in my, so I am uh, a proceduralist. I do this in my day-to-day -day life. I inject people's knees all the time. I don't actually numb them up because that's another stick and quite painful. You know what I do? I put something cold on there and I take the cold thing off and I do the injection and patients will even say like, I didn't even know you did anything because it, it tricks the human mind. It's another, it's a gateway theory of a pain. It's mm -hmm. another sensation and it's their expectation. Yeah. And my, my dentist does this too. When he's going to do an injection into my mouth, he taps my, the, between my, my forehead. And he, as he's doing that, he then injects me and, a, and a, you know, I guess I'm like hypnotized, like crocodile Dundee hypnotizes, um, you know, uh, alligators and cows. Uh, you know, it, it's, it is, it's this other sensation and your brain just doesn't register the pain because pain happens in the brain. The pain doesn't actually happen in the body. Right. Well, I, yeah, it's more, yeah. I mean, it's all related. The brain, of course, is the body, but pain happens and is perceived in multiple places. Okay, so that's interesting. My understanding of pain is that it, it all it all feeds into the brain. The brain experiences something. It, it collects the signals from the body, and then then the experience yeah, of pain yeah, actually right, happens exactly. in the brain. But you have different types. I mean, there's like nociceptive pain. There's there's different sorts of of uh, fibers that have different sorts of pain that the brain interprets depending on what that pain is and where it's coming from. And again, this gets into like the human sensation that we call pain is like we draw boundaries around that, but there are no actual boundaries. Oh, that's a really good point because this is a word that we use, right? Pain is a word, and and you know you have emotional pain and you have the nail through your foot, and we say that it's pain, but it's you know these could we could have defined that in a totally different way, which is actually really why I love talking to you because you are very deep into the philosophy of medicine, and there's not a lot of people who really delve into that, right? We live in a world now that really want, love, loves the business of medicine, like like. We love the idea that we can create a drug that will, or a procedure or something that will save someone's life and, you know, raise us a lot of money. But the question of like, what are we doing when we practice medicine is, it, it, for me, it's way more interesting, right? Because, it, you know, when somebody has a symptom, like when, when I began this podcast, I asked you, what is a disease? And, and if you define a disease very open, uh, everything can be a pathology. And if you define it very narrowly, nothing is a pathology because we're all going to die anyway, because that's normal to die. And so how do we get something where a doctor is useful um, to life? And, 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 you know, a few months ago, no, months, maybe years ago, I asked you, 
can you suggest me a great book on history of medicine? And you suggested um, Lester King's book. And I think, is it called On Medicine? Is that what it's called? Oh my God. What is it called? Uh, it's a history of medical thinking is the subtitle, but what's the, uh... <laughs> I can't yeah. remember right now. It's by Lester King. Yeah, it's Lester, and Lester King was a was a you know a medical historian and clinician, and had I think it was at Johns Hopkins, and and, and it's a great text because it it got me to think a very very deeply about what a disease is in the first place. What is a doctor even trying to do uh, when they come and intercede, and how is it even different from like a shaman, right? Like like fundamentally, a shaman is a guy or a gal who's trying to fix a problem in you. And that's also what a doctor is doing. Well, what is, I mean, I think that's a great example. Uh, sh- I, you, I'm trying not to use the word nosology here. A shaman yeah, or looking within our own medical tradition, uh, let's say I go back to the, you know, the 12th century and we're talking about balancing humors. There's a different understanding of the source of diseases, but the way we Mm -hmm. intellectually draw categories around those things and the way we investigate that and the way we give treatments, isn't that different? And then you can look and I mean, you, you are much more experienced with shamans than I am, but like these (laughs) other traditional, like Chinese traditional medicine appears to work in, in many things. So these other Mm -hmm. explanatory models that don't always, or often don't fit the way that, you know, we understand disease pathology still work in certain cases? And, and what does that mean? And why does that happen? Yeah. And uh, one of the most interesting ones uh, that, that you've talked about on several of your podcasts, and, and it's written about extensively elsewhere too, is, is bloodletting. And yeah. you've mentioned humorism. So we're going to talk about bloodletting just for a second, because it's a great little side uh, uh, note. When we think in, in the West about bloodletting, it is Hey, science was crazy bad in the past. They tried to bleed people and they all died because they bled them to death because we need our blood in our bodies. And <laughs> and weren't those people super silly and maybe even evil for how they they bloodlet? But yeah, the it's like, case well, science is, actually- is so much better now. Look how stupid doctors were. <laughs> Look how stupid people were in the past, right? That's the narrative. Yeah, but also bloodletting is actually so much cocaine and bloodletting. That's what people think. <laughs> And, you know, those were, those were heady and fun times. Let's just admit it. You know, when you mix a little cocaine and mix a little bloodletting, you get great <laughs> clinical outcomes. Uh, <laughs> uh, but tell me why bloodletting may have not been that crazy. I don't think bloodletting was, well, so first we have lots of people who have written in the past, including like the classic example is George Washington. And everyone talks about how George Washington had, I don't remember how many liters of blood, but during his final illness, he was bled to death. He wasn't. Mm-hmm. He died of epiglottitis. But even he reported that he felt better. So we know that people felt better with bloodletting. Patients sought mm-hmm. it out. It's not like crazy doctors were doing this to them and they didn't feel they'd go to their local barber and they mm-hmm. wouldn't even see a doctor and go get their own bloodletting. And then there are for even from a modern perspective, there's reasons to think that bloodletting might work. Um, a lot of people had rheumatic heart disease back then uh, from from mm-hmm. scarlet fever. We it doesn't exist really in the United States now, but I, my first job was in Botswana, and there was plenty of it there, and and many low mm-hmm. and medium income countries still there. Well, if you don't have diuretics and you don't have ways to reduce the amount of fluid in your body, bloodletting is going to be incredibly effective. Uh, it's certainly mm-hmm. less good than what we have, but it's going to make people feel better. Um, mm-hmm. And then there's even like the, the one of my favorite examples is everyone's like, oh, well, we finally did a study and it showed bloodletting didn't work. And this is Pierre Louis. It's in the 1830s. Really, really kind of 
fun, fun study looking at people with severe pneumonia, less severe pneumonia, and whether early bloodletting saved their lives or not. But his conclusion actually was that in the sickest patients, bloodletting saved lives. Uh, so oh even when we've studied it by a scientific by a scientific perspective, like bloodletting appears to work. And then there's some interesting subgroup analyses in, in uh, 20th century and uh, early 21st century studies that suggest that phlebotomy, like slightly lower hemoglobin levels, if it's removed, might actually be beneficial. And that I don't know, though. That's not strong evidence. But everyone yeah, has well, this, like, fixed belief. And the thing is, it's the, it's the doctors go in there trying to alleviate symptoms. And if something looks like it alleviates symptoms, it's not necessarily bad. And, and, you know, we have things like now called blood thinners. You know, you take, you know, uh, Coumadin, that's a blood thinner, right? Uh, and, and well, a great way to thin blood would also be to have less blood, right? <laughs> and it, it, they, they may do somewhat similar things. And given the technology at the time, definitely take your Coumadin. But in other eras, these things could be things that, that clinically could work. And a doctor with no ability, no modern pharmacopoeia could theoretically go back to blood limbic. Actually, this does help. Right. And, and, and just to say, this is something that we sort of did. So heart failure, that's when fluid backs up on your body because your heart can't pump it enough. Uh, in the, this sounds absolutely horrific, but we didn't have a good way to get fluid off. And in the late 19th century, they use these things called Southey tubes. And this is disgusting. They would sit this poor edematous patient, put a giant tub at their foot and just basically jab a bunch of trocars, a bunch of open needles into their legs and the fluid would come off. And they took a ton, like liters and liters and liters a day. Sounds horrible. You can imagine there are a lot of infections. We have diuretics now, but there's this brief period in the 1950s when penicillin exists but good diuretics don't exist. And they, I, there's, oh, wow. it's a, so they would prophylax people with penicillin. And this was published in JAMA. And then insert all these tubes into their legs and just let mm -hmm. the fluid come to get the fluid off of people. And it shows like these things that sound sort of horrific. Mm -hmm. it, it worked. And if we had nothing else, bloodletting would probably work for some of these conditions. It's just that we have better treatments right now. Right. And thank God for better treatments. Like, I, I like, um, it, it's, it's, what fascinates me about the progress of medicine is we go through these eras where things look barbaric, but they're actually cutting edge. And then we move, the paradigm moves to, to sort of a way that, you know, maybe you get better and better clinical outcomes, but sometimes also the paradigm moves and, 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 and some of the kernels of what was previously yeah. barbaric may actually have been useful ways to treat humans in for other infections, for other yeah, you know, yeah, the yeah. Paradigm so, so pyrotherapy shifts. is probably the biggest example there, right? Pyrotherapy. So the mm -hmm. 1927 uh, Nobel Prize in Medicine was awarded to Wagner Yoreg for curing tertiary syphilis by infecting them with malaria, and that cured people of what what um, was called general paresis of the insane, like the end stages of syphilis. Cured them. He won the Nobel Prize, and throughout. Prior to the invention of penicillin, people were heating people up to cure all sorts of infectious diseases. Then finally, penicillin comes around, and we've really abandoned any pyrotherapy mm -hmm. into the last couple of years. That's one. That's one of those examples. Wait, when you say the last, so let's define some things for the people who don't know what this is. Pyrotherapy is in, in, inducing a fever. Yes. Right. Uh, in into somebody, and and what you're saying is that somebody with end stage syphilis. If you heated their body way up with an infective agent, malaria in this case, uh, 
the, 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 whatever was causing that disease died. And then the, if the person didn't die from the fever, they would reset to normal. And well, they quinine, right? So they would cure the malaria. So they would infect them mm-hmm. with malaria, get them to have really high fevers, uh, and then cure the malaria with quinine. And people who were in comas were waking up. Wow. Wow. And we don't, and do we still do this? And, and is an effective treatment for COVID? <laughs> so yeah, I, 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 well, this, this this gets into some of the great controversies about fevers. Uh, something so simple, right? You have a fever, take Tylenol. We still don't know if that's a good or a bad thing, really. Like that's how that's how primitive some of our understanding is because of the way that we framed our questions. Hmm. G- dig into that a little bit more. Uh, have a fever, take Tylenol, and that cures you. Why would that not necessarily be the case? Well, no, no, it's, it's the opposite. So the theory, uh, and there is some evidence both, oh my God, poor with poor rabbits that we've like murdered. <laughs> uh, a lot yeah. of these studies come from animals, but also in ICU patients, the idea is that a fever itself is protective, that there is something the human body raises your body's temperature, causing fevers to kill off the organism as a defensive mechanism, which is how pyrotherapy presumably worked or works. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's this debate, like I have a fever, should I take Tylenol? Um, and in particular, this comes in really, really sick. Cause you know, you have the flu, you and I are going to be fine mostly from the flu. It's probably not a high stakes decision, but in some of these really, right. really critically ill people, should we suppress their fever or should we allow them to have fevers? Does that actually improve their survival? And that's an open area of discussion. And it appears that in past areas, we've been too aggressive about treating fevers. Because it's something we can treat, right? It's because it's it's a thing that we can do. And as abnormal, the doctor gets abnormal, in there. abnormal, <laughs> right? That's, uh-huh. uh, it, the number is high. Let's treat it. Yeah, that's fascinating. When, when, when in reality, the body may just be responding along an evolutionary pro. No, sorry. The body is 100% responding along an evolutionary program that has in the past been effective. And the doctor is, because when you go to a doctor, you're like, do something, right? Doctor, I have yellow fever. Can help me fix yellow fever or whatever is presenting. And, and the doctor wants to do stuff. They want to intervene. Uh, and, 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 and the patient wants the doctor to intervene. And, and so there's this expectation of treatment when in reality, in some cases, it, that may not be the best thing to do. I, I think it has, lot of, in more cases than you would think, it's not the right thing to do. Yeah. So how does a doctor function in the world? I mean, you, you're an internist and, and a, a hospitalist too. So like, you sort of like run the hospital, right? Yeah. I, 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 I take care of hospitalized patients and I also work in a clinic. And these days I also do weight loss medicine, which is very, uh, yeah, hot area also. Which is why you're looking so svelte today. I just that is not, I'm not on a, I'm not on Ozempic. <laughs> <laughs> I don't partake. I just eat a, you know, that is... <laughs> uh, wait, so what so, was your, so, what was your question? So how does it, how does a doctor know when to treat, when their treatment is excessive and when it's not excessive? We, we don't, like, that's the problem, right? We, we don't actually know. We run studies on populations of people and we try to extract, but at the end of the day, we have to extrapolate that to an individual and we don't and humans are humans and doctors also, mm-hmm. we, uh, we believe a lot of the stories we've told about ourselves, right? So that's, that's a problem. Mm-hmm. I think doctors overtreat quite frequently and sometimes harm people. Yeah. I'm, I'm Googling, uh, uh, a, a name of a book that I just read and it's not coming up. It's like the measure of man. Um, uh, and it's, it, it's, it's about how 
measurement in the world. Yeah, yeah. Oh my God. Who wrote it? From... I know the book. I haven't read it, but I've heard it. Yeah. Who wrote that book? It, it's like, it's like it's something Vincent is his last name. One second. I'm going to get you. Yeah. Sorry. It's called beyond measure by, by James Vincent. And, and I'm reading it right now. It's great. And, and it, it basically goes back to like the first times we ever measured anything uh, to, uh, what, all to the, the way soldiers, right to, uh, the soldiers chest widths. Um, with, oh my God, no, it was, bef- it was, it, it was before that it was, you know, oh, okay, okay. they were, they were measuring things in like, you know, like 5,000 BC. Oh, okay. never we're been. not even sure what they're measuring. Cause we only know that they are measuring and, and it's, it's a great book, but one of the things he gets to in the middle is like measuring man, uh, like mankind at that time. And, and, and what doctors were doing, I think this was like the 1700s this is after we invented, st- like when we invented statistics, we were basically collecting up all the ways that people died you know, suicide, murder, whatever. And we found in England and France that, you know, there were roughly the same amount of murders every year, roughly the same amount of, of suicides and et cetera, et cetera, which made people believe that there was like a normal, like yes. almost a yeah, force yeah. of God coming in saying, this is what uh, is, is there. And you can't really make a society that's better because this is just a force in the world. And we've measured this force. And, and, and they went from there to looking at, um, measuring the human body and the first doctors, and I forget the doctor's name. You can look it up in his book, but the first doctor who was measuring man tried to make the average man. Like they wanted to be like, they measure all the things like your height, your weight, your, you know, your body mass index. He created that idea. Um, and, and the idea was that you would create the perfect man by form, but which would be called the average man. Yeah. And, and I found that interesting one, because like you can sort of like from nature deduce through the power of measurement, what the perfect human would be. And that perfect human would be the aggregate of all current humans. Uh, and in a world now where we're like the word average just makes you feel like a failure. Uh, it's, it's a really interesting because now we all want to be superhuman. We want to be much better than whatever average we have. Average uh, was. so for your anthropology background, we have two of them at, uh, the Harvard Peabody museum. So for the Chicago mm-hmm. world's fair, they created the average man and the average woman, like models that they would show off, which again, this is the average is perfect. And the models are actually mm-hmm. there. They look like they're from Iowa, right? They're like corn fed white people. <laughs> Corn-fed, naked, fit white people. Uh, but it's like the same oh, idea, man. and it's so funny to actually look at their view of perfection as average. Yeah. And I wonder, you know, there must be so many racial uh, ideas oh, just well, like, yeah, yeah, caked we, into that. Right? We, that's something that we've been reckoning with in medicine from, like, seemingly mundane things. Like, we do race corrections for a lot of things, uh, and those mm-hmm. race corrections are based – like when you go back, like pulmonary function test, what is the reserve of our lungs? It's based on <laughs> like measurements that were done in slave eras and based on fundamental mm. assumptions about the inferiority of black people. And we still use those today. Uh, the way that we measure renal function uses race corrections. That's really probably mostly measuring poverty, like uh, poverty yeah. and disadvantage because the, they did not do representative samples. And they just, anyway. Yeah. Um, well, when, you at, thing, when you look at, when you look at, go on. Oh, I was going to give you an example about how the idea of average hurts us in medicine. So, mm-hmm. Scott, you get you sometimes get lab values that are red, that, that are out of bounds, and it freaks you out, right? How yeah, and I doctor... had to ask you about this weird mole that I have later. We'll go into that soon, but yeah, go oh, on. Well, how, <laughs> how did we determine what's what's not average? It's just two standard deviations. So, one of the things that's active in hematology is anemia in women. Uh, they based what a normal blood count is 
on men and women. But you know what? A lot of women have lose blood all the time and would feel a lot better with treatment with iron. Um, and we just for years wow. ignored that because we're like, look, it's two standard deviations. Well, it turns out that women are probably anemic a large part of their part of their lives. And now there's a whole generation of hematologists saying we need to treat these women. They actually feel better. There's studies saying that they feel better, but it's because this idea of, of an average and all we did was average path, well, pathology. Well, the whole definition that came up in this, in this, um, beyond measure book as well as where, where the, so this idea in statistics, right? You have where the averages and the standard deviations become less and less likely sort of on an exponential curve. And when you go two standard deviations out, it's pretty unlikely something happens, but you can go like 20 standard deviations out and things will still maybe occur on a statistical level. Um, but the idea with the, with standard deviations in, in measurement was that this was a, actually a natural law that, that, that things have to deviate along this bell curve. Cause if they didn't, that was unnatural, which assumes that a human concept and the human measurement of this meta property is really a law of the universe. And I don't think that's really been proven. And as is what you're saying with blood is like, it's really about how you take a measurement that ultimately determines the value of what that yeah. measurement yeah, yeah. is. And I'm trying not to get too, uh, too either philosophical or statistical, but the, in diagnostics, we call that a spectrum bias, which is, okay, you gotta, you, God, God did not come down from, wait, what temple did, Mo, did uh, Moses walk down from? Is it Mount Sinai? The, it, I'm a the, bad Jew. The big one. The, uh, I think it's is Mount Sinai, but yeah, it's it's Mount, the big, so, the big, the big God temple. Yeah. Yeah, the, the, yeah. Like God did not give a range of normal values. You know, the, the third, the third tablet from a uh, history of the world part two. Um, and we have to measure these and the choices we make in who we measure, how we measure, when we measure, mm -hmm. we get these like really scientific looking numbers, but there's so much variety there. And it's actually human, like humans are making these decisions. And if you measure differently, measure at a different time, measure different mixes of people, you can get totally different numbers. And the pseudo certainty of the numbers makes us much more confident than we should be in many cases. Oh yeah. We love a good number, right? Like a good number just makes us feel so much better than like a weird squishy. I feel tired, doc. No, I'm <laughs> exactly. a four on tired. <laughs> um, because, it, because once it becomes math, it becomes something that you can deal with an abstract when in reality, humanity is incredibly complex, which is a great segue into the research that you've been doing uh, for 20 ish years. I mean, I actually, I don't know more yeah, like it. 10. I, I'm not that old. So let's go, let's go with 10. So yeah. I don't seem like a dinosaur. Only 10 years, Adam has been looking into this, but so for some context for our listeners, Adam has looked at the way that the, the future of medicine going back in time. So what people in, back in time thought the future would look like. And in, I think it was, a, I'm going to butcher this a little bit, but like in the fifties and sixties, we had this idea that you could make computers that would diagnose disease and help humans figure out things when computers were really bad or maybe not existent. Um, that question in the fifties, well, actually I'll just ask you, what were they thinking in the fifties and how does that parallel what we're looking at today? Yeah, yeah. So this gets to what this is actually ties directly into what we're talking about. Back in the 1950s, people were, I'll, I'll go ahead and say they were naive, and they felt, look, diseases, one, they exist. There are very specific patterns. Diseases can be very clearly divided apart, and we just need to collect the right information. And then we don't need to rely on these squishy human minds, and a computer algorithm will match those data sets and find out which mm -hmm. disease either fits directly or is most likely, right? They 
not again they they wanted to do a probable probabilistic basis where they could say oh almost that like these were almost like they were platonic ideals yeah exactly right? exactly like like in, in plato's allegory of the in plato's allegory of the cave the idea was that reality you were a human looking at a cave and the shadows on the of the wall is all you understood but reality was happening behind you and you had no idea what it were but those were real things like there was a a tree, you might see a shadow of a tree, but there was like tree, big capital T tree right. that it really existed. And what, what these models were saying was that, no, there were big capital diseases and syphilis is a real thing. Capital yeah. S. Syphilis is capital S. Syphilis is a real thing. And that the tests that humans have to determine these things are real tests, able to say like, mm -hmm. yes, no. Right. And that you could just mm -hmm. tally that up feed it through a computer. You don't need these squishy cheeseburger powered human minds and it'll give you a diagnosis. It didn't work. <laughs> it it, it because, didn't work at all. Because of, because of a, why? Because of a major philosophical problem? Because we didn't have good enough computers. Uh, I, so my opinion, and I think most informaticists from even 20 years later in the 1970s, they looked back at this previous generation and they're like, those people were idiots. Um, be, because of a philosophical misunderstanding of the cognitive work of a doctor, right? That's not, diseases are not platonic ideals. Tests are not perfect. Um, and at the end of the day, we care about how the patient does, not like, is there a big D disease? Yeah. I mean, like, I don't care how many syphilises I have right now if syphilis doesn't bother me, right? Like, if, 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 you know, syphilis is a, is a spirochete, right? It's like a, it's like a, like a, is that a parasite? A spirochete sounds like a parasite. Is it a bacteria? I don't it's know. A bacteria. Exactly. It's a bacteria. It's a curly okay. Q shaped bacteria. Okay. So this little thing might be in your body and, and, and it does mean things to you and, and, and can present and really kill you. But in general, I don't really care what sort of melange of bugs are in me if I don't feel bad about it. And you won't right? feel yeah. bad in the future. The, bo both of those and. pieces. Yeah. Yeah. I yeah. think the future thing is actually super important here. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it, it, this is going back to functional medicine. That's what functional medicine is trying to predict is the, is the future of mm -hmm. the present, but also the future. Uh, and that's difficult. Yeah. And so what is going on? With, so in the fifties, it, it failed because of a philosophical problem, but I assume we're much smarter now. Like we're super smart now. We've, we've studied all the data points. What does, what is the promise of AI? Well, I think when we say AI, we need to be specific about what we're talking about because mm -hmm. the word people throw a word AI around like it's like people were talking about AI in the 1950s to mean the, like this expert systems that are less advanced than like, what's an algorithm that's an expert system. You know, like when you choose something and it gives you branching logic, people called that an AI back in the 1950s. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. I, I think... You AI often now means generative AI. That's a decision also, tree. That's a, a decision tree. tree yeah, that people yeah. call that artificial intelligence. Mm -hmm. Um, so in the let's say in the eighties and nineties, doctors or these informaticians, these programmers were no longer as naive about the problem, and they mm -hmm. still imagined that what you and I have been talking about—that we would collect so much data that we would be able to make inferences, predictive inferences, uh, originally through, this is, I'm trying to not use jargon, but through probabilities, through through like, Ooh, what is the pretest probability of disease? How do these tests change it? And then as, mm -hmm. as time went on, they started to develop machine learning algorithms that could make mm -hmm. predictions, like it's a black box, without humans actually understanding the inputs and outputs. And now in right. the last few, yeah, go ahead, sorry. No, that's great. I mean, like the, the whole idea of the, 
the, the I mean, Matt Getz wrote, wrote this book, uh, I think it was called The Decision Tree, you know, 10, 15 years ago. And it was this idea that with big data, and he's a, he was an editor over at Wired, right? The, the idea was like, if you just got enough data yeah. and the computer looked at the data, it would figure out health. And we don't know how it would do it. And this was but before it the AI. Yeah. yeah, but it would. It would know. We know this, the information is there and just some sort of like, I know, genie in the machine would figure out the problem. We don't even need doctors anymore. At least they would be play a second fiddle role because they because doctors couldn't even un conceive of all the data. Unless if you look at like Sonny Bal like what Sonny Balwani was saying during the whole Theranos thing, that's what Elizabeth Holmes mm -hmm. believed, right? That people would just collect so much data about themselves and computers would be able to understand it in a meaningful way that would help predict and prevent disease. Um, I think that's a not uncommon belief in Silicon Valley. And for the last mm -hmm. 20 years, that's been a goal of artificial intelligence and these machine learning algorithms. And then all of a sudden you have these foundational models come in. Uh, so like uh, GPT is, is the one that's obviously mm -hmm. everybody excited about, but there's others. And these things are exciting because they're able to be, we talked about this a bit at the beginning, to be a simulacra of the human mind. So mm -hmm. diagnosis, the way that we currently understand it, the best that we know is this like balancing of talking to a person, putting together all of the symptoms, thinking about that person's situation through different processes in our brain and coming up with a plan. And, you know, the, what you're describing, um, what gets his book and, and this idea of big data, mm -hmm. that's, that's a different way of understanding disease. But these mm -hmm. foundational models appear to create things that are show remarkable insight in a similar way that humans do. So this technology surprised everybody in the clinical reasoning community. Uh, and that's, that's like what I have been that's been the focus of what I've been doing for the last six or seven months is reckoning what these technologies mean for making decisions and for automating, for automating some of these processes. All right. So what, I mean, if you can briefly summarize, what do you think is going to happen? And you know, more, you know, more about this than I do. Where, where is this going? Uh, so what else? So I, I'm, um, I'm actually leading, this is why I've been so busy. I'm doing actual randomized control trials on, uh, the use of some of these tools with, with doctors making decisions and they work, uh, that, that, the so it's, there is a lot of hype, right? You go on, you wait, go wait, on Twitter and, and, and they work, wait, you just work. say, and these things work. So and it's these, good. Well, I, so the question right now is not just, it, it's more that it, we have to start thinking about like how they're used. Like not only is it able to come up with something that's meaningful or useful, but what does it do to the human using it to take care of another human? So there's like mm -hmm. second order effects and how do you, how do you know when it's wrong? Uh, what sort of safety standards are there? So I, my opinion is that the first order question is that they work and we need to start thinking about what this means for doctors, but also for patients. And honestly, I'm pointing this to you as if I'm not a patient also. Every human being, like, what, there's no there's no well people anymore in our society, right? We've medicalized pretty much all of human existence. So everybody is a patient. And uh, So the, the, the idea that you would go to a doctor and they would run all of the tests, right? Whatever the tests are you need, the MRIs, the blood panels, the, you know, lipid profile, whatever it is you're doing. And then and then you 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 probably would present a symptom. I I feel crummy, and and the, the machine's going to be like, you feel crummy because you have the you know tuberculum bacillus in your body. Yeah, or, yeah so it'll do more or, than that. I mean, it'll ask you more questions. So this is what's different, mm -hmm. right? The the initial model is you need to collect as much information as possible, 
and we'll get some insight out of that. Mm -hmm. Un unproven idea, a, a, a potent idea, but unproven. The mm -hmm. LLM and uh, LLMs are, it's not going to be like talking to chat GPT, right? It, it's going to be mm -hmm. more advanced technology. It's going to be very specific, but it will look at that information and do similar things to what I do, right? So you said mm -hmm. you were worried that your Billy Rubin was 0.2. It'll look at that yeah. and take everything else into context, similar to how a human would, and then give its recommendations based on that using, it's a black box. We don't know what's going on, but using whatever the hell happened when you have a mm -hmm. foundational model trained on all of human literature and whatever. Well, it sounds, I mean, the, the, the conversation around this is probably very similar to like the self-driving car conversation, right? Where self-driving cars, like people are so nervous about self-driving cars because, you know, they could kill you and they probably will kill a certain number of people. But when I look at like the drivers in Denver, I'm like, give me self-driving cars yeah. <laughs> everywhere because, you know, while the, that car will make mistakes, it won't make, it won't be, you know, Janet down the street who's looking at her phone the whole time and is high on pot because we live in Denver. Um, and, oh, you know, we have that in Massachusetts too. So. <laughs> well, we have mushrooms too here. So, you know, you do? Oh, oh. <laughs> yeah, they, they just went legal. Whole other conversation to be had there. <laughs> um, but the idea is that like, you know, why not have something that will make fewer mistakes because it draws on more information and, and follows like more prescribed rules versus the subjective problem of doctors. You know, like there's this famous study, like if you have a heart attack, you don't want to go to, you don't want to present yourself to the best cardiac surgeon in your city because your outcomes are usually worse because that cardiac surgeon usually thinks they're the best and they do the experimental treatment and that kills you. Yeah. And, and so the standard, like in terms of clinical reasoning, like we've understood doctors, not all doctors, but on the whole, we're terrible at it. We don't do a great, we don't do a great job. Uh, the fact that people do okay, like we probably do a good enough job most of the time, but we're, there's so much left to be desired. So it's, it, I think it's a really good relevant thing to the car, uh, the self-driving car. Mm -hmm. And then once you get that, once you have that acceptance, then it's a question of how do you, how do you know when you're at that point? What are the standards that we need mm -hmm. to adopt? Because we've never been in this situation before. This is something we've been thinking about this in medicine for a very long time, but you can tell people never really took it seriously because until a couple, until a couple months ago, the standards that we use to investigate these symptoms systems were so naive. And like, what did what did uh, Google use? What did Microsoft use to see that it could be a doctor? Multiple choice question tests, as if that's what doctors do. So, right, <laughs> no one has taken this seriously, and now we have to take it seriously. It's funny when I was before I was preparing for this interview, uh, I generally distrust AI. I don't know if I should. It's just like sort of an emotional reaction because I, I do. I can intellectually conceive of what of a bright future might look like, but I can also conceive of the horror yeah. future. Um, and one of the things I was thinking was like, what could AI do all pretty much immediately that would make doctoring so much better? And I realized all the doctors that I know hate the paperwork of doctors. Yep, exactly. Right? Yeah, you're a hundred percent right. It's like you you get in there, you want to treat patients, you want to talk to them, you want to reason things out, and then you want someone else to deal with the insurance forms and the filings and the coding and the bullshit that, that goes with it. And almost every doctor I know is thinking about leaving doctoring because of the paperwork. Yeah, not because uh, of like seeing patients or making decisions, but because of all mm -hmm. the documentation. Yeah. Couldn't AI, couldn't someone right now make an AI program just listen in to you? 
as you, you know, you run oh, your tape recorder, God. series it's listening right it. now. So oh, two I things, one nuance. So Dragon is the dictation software that all doctors use. Microsoft owns uh-huh. it and they've launched mm-hmm. DAX, which is exactly what you're saying. You talk to a patient, it listens in and it generates the entire note for you. And all you have to do is approve it. At the same time at UVA, Epic, which is the big EMR system in the US, oh, across the world, they have launched their generative note-taking technology. So it tries to predict and help a first draft of your note based on what's in the chart. So these technologies, and then there's so many startups. There's so Everyone wants to make a buck. So there's like a million startups out there. And the preliminary oh. data on these things suggests what you're saying, which is it drastically cuts down on paperwork time. I think that's like, honestly, that's the most exciting thing to me that I've heard all day about this because, um, you know, so many doctors are overburdened and, uh, and this could be like the biggest sea change in the community of doctors that I know. And probably also patients because doctors then can actually spend more time clinically reasoning with maybe the benefit of a cool AI tool, uh, but also like their human, as you call it, the cheeseburger mind, which does make me question the Boston diet. Um, I just want to cheeseburger and coffee is what I usually say. Like the brain brains are powered on cheeseburgers and coffees, whereas, you know, LLMs require a lot of energy and uh, rare earth elements. (laughs) (laughs) But Um, it's, yeah, go on. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. I was I was going to ask if I'm allowed to mention post-structuralist philosophy if you're going to get or you're going to get mad at me. You can mention post-structuralist philosophy, but we probably need to have some guidelines around this. <laughs> um, no, no, no. Go, go. Tell okay. Me. <laughs> so I'm going to quote Jacques Derrida. So um, he wrote Plato's Pharmacy in the early 80s, one of the last things he wrote. And it was based on this idea of the word pharmakon in Greek. So in Greek, the word for poison and medicine were the same. Uh, it's where pharmacology comes from. Whoa, wait, what? Really? Poison and medicine yeah. were the same. Why? Because, and this is why where Derrida took it, took it, is that every innovation, every invention in the in the human existence, every word, because he's Derrida, has the ability to be both harmful or helpful. And it doesn't necessarily make sense to draw boundaries over good things and bad things, but rather to uh, you know, express the duality of how we can how we can really fuck things up as humans. And uh, the more powerful the technology, the greater the pharmacon. And I think AI in the medic, I'm sure this is in all fields. I'm very narrowly focused in like clinical reasoning, but it has, it's a pharmacon, right? It could make it so that doctors and patients spend a lot of time talking to each other. And it's, it's a wonderful experience. It's like Star Trek future. It's like on a Dr. Mm-hmm. Crusher on the enterprise, a very mm-hmm. humanistic thing with the, the computer rekindling the human side of medicine. But you can also imagine how in America, where we care about money above all else, that these tools could be used by healthcare administrators to increase efficiency and eventually push a lot of the human side out of medicine, especially if these things are shown to be effective. So one of the reasons I've been working like a crazy person is these technologies are like, what is it from community, the darkest timeline? I don't want us to go into the darkest timeline that completely removes the human side from medicine because... There is a 2,000, 3,000, let's just go back with the shaman, right? There's something fundamental to the healing act that is similar between what I do and what a shaman does and what a Greek mm-hmm. physician thousands of years did and what ancient Chinese physicians did, which is that relationship between humans. And this could, if goes wrong, I think, remove the human from that calculus. Yeah, I mean, it's nice that you brought up Dr. Crusher on the USS Enterprise uh, because one, great show. Two, um, 
she was still a doctor, right? That model was the Dr. Crusher was there and she said, computer, tell me about the blood panels and, and, and yeah. this stuff. And so there, it was fundamentally about a conversation between you, but it was also very efficient. There was Dr. Crusher and there were like three nurses under her, right? In blue outfits and they course, assisted and, and you forgot to be blue, but you actually had this whole community of people. Um, it, it basically made it more efficient. You had the hospital, you basically had a whole hospital serving the 1500 people on the enterprise who were uh, probably dealing with some pretty big zoonotic diseases that, that are not unusual at least. It's basically uh, veterinary medicine given all the species on board the enterprise. <laughs> totally. Totally. Some of those species could talk, um, which was better. It, it's interesting. You bring up the, the, um, the Greeks and the Chinese and, and the, the, interpersonal version importance of medicine because you know when we talk about the placebo effect we talk about the, the nocebo or shamanism or, or psychedelics even like there is this this the expectation that the patient has to go through essentially a medical ceremony like you're in your ceremonial garb. a ritual a ritual uh, there is a ritual and that ritual has documented healing powers right it it, it is it is it is there. And one of the, so I, I'm writing this book that was previously on napping. I maybe have told you about this and I've realized after writing it and sending it to my editor, that it's about dreaming <laughs> and that, that ultimately I was super interested in napping. But when I got really deep down the napping hole, I realized that I was talking about the experience of moving from wakefulness into sleepiness, which put me down into the dream world. And I wrote a whole book about dreaming essentially in the container of napping. And so I have to re jigger that whole thing. But one of the things that I, that I, I, I came across in the book, in the research was that Asclepius. And for those of you who are listening, uh, I, I'm sure most of you know who Asclepius is, but if you happen to not, you can imagine the, the doctor symbol, you know, that staff with the snakes on it and the wings, that is the symbol of the God of medicine in Greece, Asclepius. And the, the, did you, maybe you didn't know this, or maybe you did Adam, um, the, what was the, the what was the technique that the Asclepians used to treat um, illness? Oh, so I don't know. Tell me, I'm I'm curious. Oh, good, I, I got to get I get I get to give you a nerdy fact. I love uh, nerdy facts. You <laughs> give me lots of nerdy facts. Okay, okay. The Asclepians, um, it was a sleep temple. You would go to the Ascle temple of Asclepius, and you would essentially you would take a nap thinking on your illness and the god Asclepius, or I think his nephew, I mean, some sort of weird Greek stuff was going on, would come in and meet you in your dreams and, and tell you the cure to your dreams in your sleep. So sleep was like the fundamental medical unit of the of Asclepius. And now Asclepius is his symbol, is the symbol of all medicine around the world. And fun fact, until about the 18th century, Asclepiad was a synonym for doctor. They still called doctors oh. Asclepiads in the uh, 18th century. I did. And I also heard that um, that there's also this thing called the caduceus. Man, we're getting nerdy here. Which was yeah, this actually... is uh, to argue about the Asclepiad, <laughs> the rod of Asclepiad, <laughs> the caduceus. Yes, I know all about that one. That's very uh, so nerdy. It's super nerdy. Is that, that maybe we used the wrong symbol and the Asclepius staff was actually, the ones we used in America was actually the wrong staff because we copied the wrong uh, document. It was the caduceus. Wow. That's rough. If you really want to get into this, you should got, have to listen to um, Adam Rodman's bedside rounds. And I forget the episode. I also have no spent. idea. It's very old. Rod of Asclepius is just a, a stick with a snake on it. 
Yeah, but you spent, I think, like 30 minutes talking about the difference. I, I'm really good about spending a lot of time talking about stuff that no one other than me cares about. <laughs> and apparently me, uh, apparently me on like bike rides, I, I'll, I'll, I'll like throw on your podcast. And I, I've listened to almost all of them. I think I've missed some of the more recent ones, but like almost all of them have been you know, chiming into my brain. Yeah, if um, you want to hear me talk about biostatistics and the intersection with post-structuralist philosophy, there's your, I'm your guy. <laughs> I'm your guy, man. Um, I, although I do like that you ask, have to ask permission before you use a big word, and I think we should keep that tradition up. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to keep that going on. Uh, I, I need to check myself sometimes. People make fun of me for it quite a bit. Um, all right, so I have another question, if you have time here. Um, I have that. that Okay, good. So, so this is actually probably one of my big questions that I ask as, as, again, I'm an anthropologist. I have sort of a medical anthropology background, not a doctor. I know doctors. Um, but the, and I'm known for like being the ice bath breathwork guy, right? I, I, I push into this wellness area, which is not really what we think of in modern medicine, but it, it's, I find it useful for like chronic illnesses and for things that, that are maybe not amazingly dealt with in the Western medical world. And I would think a lot of people who are listening to this podcast love doctors and don't always trust doctors. I think there's like sort of like both things going on at once. And maybe the whole world is feeling like this right now. And in particular, when you talk about like big pharma coming in and giving you a medicine and, and there's this saying, you know, um, that, the, the disease is more profitable than the cure because you, you can treat a disease for your whole life. That's going to get you a lot more money than just curing an illness. So there's some suspicion around techniques that try to treat chronic illness, such as ice water, such as whatever else, prayer, you know, coffee enemas. I don't know, whatever your, whatever wellness fad you go to, but, but these <laughs> wellness fads, also go into insanity, right? They also go down this direction of like, what the hell are you actually doing? There's no way this can help you and may even hurt you. And so how do we know the difference? How do we know the difference between what is good medicine, what is bad medicine, when we know that doctors are sometimes just just doing the best they can, which is often not all that great? Uh, you're not going to like my answer because it's we. I, the the very naive answer is, oh, we studied it with randomized controlled trials, but we both know that that's not a solution. Um, there's so mm -hmm. many things that we can't, and there's poorly done trials. And the answer is, guys, well, we don't we don't know. Uh, that's what makes it so challenging, especially when, like, is that ache you're feeling? Uh, did you just was did you go on too long a bike ride, or is it the beginning mm -hmm. of of cancer? And there, like, some of these are fundamental tensions in, in detection uh, that we don't have good answers for. And it comes down to individuals' values and preferences, uh, individuals' expectations about the future. And uh, there's not a single right answer and that people don't like that. God, I, I feel like if I went to a doctor and I was like, oh my God, I've got pain in my chest. And they said, well, can you tell me about your values? I would be very upset. <laughs> I would be like, I don't want to die, my friend. <laughs> well, the, the nice thing is that so this is we have mental heuristics all the time. So, for example, if a farmer if a farmer comes in and he's like, I have a little twinge in my chest, I'm like, that man's having a heart attack. We need to do that. <laughs> but it, like that's ideally why you have a relationship with your doctor as on a human to human right. basis. Right. You have somebody mm -hmm. who knows you and knows your preferences already. So you don't have to have that awkward, that awkward mm -hmm. question. 
And it knows what you're worried about. Like if somebody, if if you came to me and you're like really worried that you had a heart attack and I thought it was very unlikely you're having a heart attack, I would mm-hmm. probably still get the EKG because there's no harm in it, low risk. Mm-hmm. And that reassurance in and of itself might be a therapy for you. And those, mm-hmm. that that's something valuable and you can't really make those decisions in the absence of having a relationship with another person. Right, right. And which is, you know, obviously one of the big failings in the American medical system. I haven't had the same doctor for more than six months in my entire life. And you probably never will again, the way that we've structured it. This is what we've decided to do. Maybe Dr. Crusher and the Enterprise will be my doctor forever. She knew everybody, right? Presumably she was the doctor or she and her nurses were the doctors for Mm -hmm. nurses for every single, are there really 15? Mm -hmm. I don't know how many people were in the Enterprise D. Mm -hmm. You know, it's funny that we went for for um, Beverly Crusher instead of Dr. McCoy. I feel like we we should have given McCoy a little bit of a of a of a nod here because he I was did it the intentionally. First. Do you know why? Why McCoy is a nineteen six like a nineteen like a frontier doctor, right? He was modeled on a frontier mm-hmm. doctor. He doesn't trust drugs. He's his mm-hmm. he doesn't have a stethoscope, but he's got his little tricorder, right? And he's mm-hmm. like super grouchy and skeptical in a way that is. Um, not forward looking, but back looking, right? Like Star Star Trek mm. looked to the past for inspiration for McCoy with Crusher. You know, obviously they were influenced by the growth in hospitals in the eighties, but they were actually trying to have a uh, a model of what future healthcare would look like. Oh, well, that's actually a very good answer. I just thought you're like I like because I like redheads or something like that. Um, uh, well, I could have so got even more. I could have said the doctor in Voyager. He was just a holiday. They just got rid of people. It was just a computer. Oh my God, you're right. They they moved it to the next level where they had sort of a personable computer, which is really what we are trying to aim to get with ChatGPT, right? A personable computer where you feel like it's a real relationship. And as we push the concept of what consciousness is in the first place, maybe it is a real relationship because maybe computers, if they get more mo- as increasingly sophisticated, they're somewhat, they are conscious. Um, so you're saying Star Trek predicts the future. I mean, they've done a pretty good job so far, and they can't yeah, the do worse phones. than us, right? They, <laughs> no, can't, they can't do worse, do worse than, than us. us. <laughs> They're doing pretty good for themselves. Maybe it's because all the nerds watch Star Trek and the nerds invent things. That might be the reason. Totally. You know, we've lost like half my audience now because they're like dorks, uh, <laughs> you know, Star Trek dorks. Um, all right. Let me ask you another, this this other medical question, which is, which is related to the one I asked before, um, but I think we can dig into it harder. In general, I would say the wellness world does fine on chronic illness because of reasons. Uh, And uh, Western medicine is really, really good at acute um, stuff. Uh, You know, if I have an acute, if I break my leg, I'm not going to go to my shaman, right? Or even we turn acute diseases into chronic diseases. Diabetes, people just died of diabetes and now you manage it throughout your life. Oh, that's a super positive spin on this, actually. And, and you know, in a book that we were, you know, we had been talking about writing before um, together, which who knows if this will happen. Uh, but, the, you know, the, the diseases of the modern world that we that we live in used to just end. Right. And so, like, the fact that we have, lo- you know, Western medicine is actually a victim of its own success, because as we have lived longer, we're dying of chronic illnesses that we would have been dead from or it would have been acute illnesses. There would have been very few chronic illnesses. I had this conversation this morning about air hunger. When you're dying of a respiratory cause, why do people get air hunger? And I was like, well, Mm -hmm. it's an evolutionary protection if you're drowning in water. And basically, Mm -hmm. no one would have experienced air hunger. They just would have died. But now we can treat people such that this is something we need to manage as a chronic issue. 
All right, well, so given that framing, which I, I, I think is wonderful, how do we decide what is chronic and what is acute? Uh, it's, there's no, God did not, yeah, I'm gonna do the same analogy. He didn't come down from Mount Sinai saying this is, like it is the probably, we're, we're turning some cancers that were uncurable into chronic illnesses. This is a open question and it's only gonna, it's only gonna get muddier in the future. Uh, medicine is still improving, right? We are, for, I, for lots of things, we're improving people's lives. And the question then becomes, well, how do you live with this? And, and what does that look like? And what does living a good life mean? And those aren't questions that science can answer, right? Right. Well, so then what the, on the flip side of that then is like, how do you know when you should be doing your random wellness treatments that make you feel better and may even have some biological interesting things going on? And how do you know that when you should switch over to the medical paradigm as it exists currently in 2023 in Boston? Uh, well, how do you choose to do a random wellness thing? Well, I consult my insurance and I realize it sucks. So I stay with the wellness thing. Yeah. I mean, you, you, uh, presumably you do it because you're seeking out wellness things and most people seek out wellness things because it makes them feel better. And I think to mm -hmm. me, the question is why do we feel the need to medicalize things that make us feel better? Um, we don't need, we don't need to understand everything in terms of its medical effects on our, our human body. I think that's really narrowing the human experience. And that's, mm -hmm. again, I, I think this is unfair because there's no strict divisions, but if napping makes you feel better, we don't need to medicalize the effects of napping. It can, napping can oh, be I a good this. thing in and of itself. I love so that. I mean, it, it, it's sort of like, it, it's wonderful because it's sort of like the anti-data side of things. It's like, you know, when I was writing this napping book and I eventually switched out of it, right, uh, to do dreaming instead, because I don't need to, to go into depth on my melatonin levels altering through the day based on certain parameters and telling you that the best way to nap is because X number of hormones line up right now for the way you should do it. My, my takeaway is no, you should just do it because it, because it is going to make you feel better at the end of that's going to be good. And the more we clinicalize things with medical knowledge, but also the wearables that you started talking about at the beginning of this show, that's that, that clinicalizes everything. And, and there's a downside to that. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly it. There is a medicalization is sometimes, so here you've, we talk about burnout, right? In our society, we talk about burnout a lot. I think there's a tendency to medicalize burnout and talk about it as a medical condition. But let's say you were a Marxist and you're looking at burnout. You're like, this is insane that we're talking about this as a medical condition. These are the effects of our social structure on the individual human. Mm -hmm. And what is, is it more, and when you think about burnout as a medical condition, well, you're like, okay, I'm going to prescribe resilience therapy, blah, blah, blah. But if you're a Marxist and you're looking at it, you're like, we need to overthrow this. But like medicalizing things has costs because when we medicalize something, we, we seek out a very certain type of treatment and that narrows mm -hmm. our focus and ignores, like, I think burnout, we should not medicalize and we should think about burnout as look at the fucked up society we've built and how we work, right? That to me, that's yeah. the... Or, or it meaning, cites, like, look at how we derive meaning and, and what's wrong with that. Yeah, it cites the problem into like a, a neurological causal chain when the neurological causal chain actually exists in your relationships outside the body. Yeah. Uh, oh, and, that's that's you know, a great way to put it, yes. And, and you know, I, in The Wedge, I write about how like our consciousness and, and 
is not just in our body, it's actually connected to the entire super organism of, of life in general. And your body may receive this stuff and transmit that information in, in chemical chains and neural connections and stuff like that, but it, it cannot exist in a vacuum. It has to exist in, in everything, which is of course, very not profitable for a pharmaceutical company, right? The pharmaceutical company can't be like, we should hire anthropologists to, to decide what the best cultural expression of, of, of your Let's burnout is. Let's study the is. best structure of society and, uh, and uh, institute that instead. Exactly. No one's going to do that. Um, and, and like, if you look at like Ivan Illich, right? He felt that all medicalization was bad. Clearly not all medicalization is bad, right? You mm -hmm. could say male pattern baldness. We, that's a, this is a very benign example. We medicalize that. 80 years ago, you go bald. That's it. Like my hairline's receding. The mm -hmm. fact that we now have drugs and we've medicalized that, I don't think it's a big deal. It, it probably like people have self-esteem issues with their hair. It's probably on the whole benefited people, but there yeah. are, there are trade-offs to that. You know, once you medicalize baldness, now people have increased self-esteem issues because they're not doing something about it. Yada, yada, yada. Oh, yeah. And it's just yeah. that, I, that I, carries I, out. Hmm? Oh, I started losing my hair. My hair is thinning a little bit, right? I'm 45 years old. It's a normal thing. I was like, oh, I should do something to like not do that. I, I took a, um, what the, the, the most popular newest drug on the market. I forget what it was. Is it a topical or a pill? It was a pill. It was a pill. Um, yeah, yeah. Finasteride. And then I, then my, uh, to get very personal here, uh, my, I, I stopped, I failed, stopped being able to have erections. Yeah, of course you did. You thing. took an anti-androgen. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, because it because it works on the prostate. It does this. It's it's also yeah. It it it, it, it innervates the prostate and your scalp. And so I, I erectile dysfunction. I was like, I, I thought about this very seriously. I was like, what are my values? Do I do I never want to have sex again? Do I want to have a full head of hair? And I'm no longer on Fasteride because uh, I decided that baldness is not, is like not a big issue. And you could also even say the, the cure for baldness is shaving your head and getting going to the gym and getting some badass tattoos. Yeah. That is also a cure That's for That's what my dad did. He got an earring, he shaved his head, and uh, yeah, grew a goatee. That was his solution to going bald at age 25. Yeah. And I think that's a, that's a, a, a perfectly fine solution to, to an issue which is not where the symptoms are actually not all that important. And they can be dealt with in a cultural way. Like if you think about a gorilla, it becomes a silverback and that – that when it gets to silverback, it's like I'm even cooler than you other gorillas, and and it's and 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 there shouldn't be necessarily an industry to you know you know dye the silverback's hair. Well, I'm comparing myself to a silverback. I'm, that's really funny. Sorry, you I'm got you really got some assault over there. I went I went gray. Maybe my profession. I went gray in my late twenties. So yeah, uh, and and you rock it. I have to say, um. <laughs> yeah, my insane person hair. Um, no, no, I think that's so. Uh, this is getting back to your question. I think you can't talk about the wellness industry without talking about medicalization. One of, again, some of the things that the wellness industry and functional medicine advocate probably work, right? They probably do work. Mm -hmm. um, now, mm -hmm. you can argue about the evidentiary standards, and I think that's an important talk to have. But then it gets on the question of, like, why do we, like, the next order, why do we have to medicalize everything? It makes sense to medicalize syphilis. I, th that to me is a line that we don't need to worry about cancer. Let's medicalize cancer, but right. mm -hmm. there are, there's the, where that line is, is, is important. And we have already, this isn't, we're not going back. We've medicalized everything mm -hmm. and we're going to continue to. Um, so another question for you, um, in the it, two years ago, 
we had this big, you know, problem in society, right? There was a virus that somehow spread around the world and people got very sick and some people started dying and, uh, and a lot of people started dying and then the world went insane. Uh, and it came up with a variety of medical understandings of what was going on. Some, some by cl clinical trials and some by, you know, gut feelings, uh, what, how would you describe what we learned from the COVID-19 epidemic? That is a very broad question. Do you want to narrow, <laughs> narrow it down? Are you want to be positive or negative? Which one? Well, let's, why don't we say positive? Because I think a lot of people can get, can go negative on this. Okay. So I want to. I, I actually worked through the, I worked like 30 something days at the height of the first surge. And I was like losing people dying every day. So I, Boston was not as bad as New York, but it was, it was pretty bad. And we got close to collapsing here. So if you want to look at like the case fatality ratio, uh, everyone talks about the Spanish flu. COVID-19 was more deadly than the Spanish flu. What was different? We actually can take a pretty, we're much better at taking care of people now, right? We have better scientific knowledge on how to care for really sick people. And we developed new vaccine technologies that work remarkably well, really, really fast and deployed them really, really fast. And I know everyone is, but yeah, millions, 2 million people died in the US. If this were 1918, 20 million people would have died in the US. So yay, that's- Yay, medicine. Yeah. Hmm? Yeah, yay, yay medicine. medicine. So, so, yeah. and then this is coming from somebody who like, my God, in the early days, we didn't, like I was, I was in PPE all day. We had no N95s. I couldn't breathe. My nose bridge was breaking down. I would come home and my wife was pregnant. I'd like strip naked, run to the shower, scrub my, like I, I was living through it. And even now I look back and I'm like, you know what? It could have been a whole lot fucking worse. <laughs> I mean, it um, was bad for me because your podcast stopped releasing in that time. Because I was working all the time. <laughs> Yeah, because you were super busy, and so I couldn't listen to you because you're like, I have to save lives. <laughs> oh no, but but and I think maybe what you're getting at is that a lot of people have not had to deal with this. I I'm, I'm going to say it. I'm sorry with nosology. Like, how do we define a disease? Until all of a sudden, we're talking about right. COVID everywhere, and we're talking about testing. And what is asymptomatic disease? When, when do we worry about them? What do we treat? Like for the first time, normal people had to deal with some of these questions that are fundamental to the practice of medicine everywhere. And as you say, people lost their mind a little bit because you had really real questions like, well, does someone have COVID-19 if they have zero symptoms, but mm -hmm. they're carrying in their nose? Uh, then you have long COVID, which is still an epistemological like mess. I use epistemology. Mm -hmm. Like it's probably a bunch of different conditions. I, I banned that word, by the way. I know. I'm sorry. I, I could. But like, on. but you have people now, now. And it's new, right? This is a new phenomenon. Well, maybe it's new. Like you could argue the Russian flu had something similar and the Russian flu may have been a coronavirus, but mm -hmm. people for the first time are having to deal with some of these deeper philosophical issues that you can say only belong to COVID, but actually deal with every single disease. You just yeah. don't think about it. I, I, I really, really like that description because it sort of shows what the value of a doctor really is, right? You, we've, we've talked about how doctors don't really know, don't always have the answers, but you come to a doctor and you ask for a decision, right? You say, in this weirdness of I presented you with some random symptoms, I'm going to ask, I am beyond my knowledge base. I am going to ask you to, to make a decision that you think will do a good job. And it may not, you may still die. You, you know, Adam could, prescribe you something, you're going to prescribe you pyrotherapy and you're going to die. And it was the error, but, but you're still like, you're going to put your trust in him. But what COVID asks us all to be, at least in the way 
we received it and the you know the social media we sort of all had to become our own doctors or we 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 entered in, into that clinical decision making chain and we were not comfortable with it no and yeah, maybe yeah, it, that's exactly <laughs> right and, and maybe you had to combine that with public health decisions, right? And we were not comfortable. You know, everyone loves reading a good story about a quarantine. Nobody likes living through one. Yeah, quarantine was terrible. Uh, you know, I I was not a fan of quarantines. I wore my mask, but I did it begrudgingly the whole time. Uh, and and because uh, I didn't want my society to change because my experience of disease was you know, we did have a couple of people die on my block, but you know, they were the old people, they were the sick people, you know, you could have sort of seen it coming. And, and yet the, I think the whole society, you know, I don't know if we as a society have learned anything um, from that. Like, I don't think it's come out at the end where people have said, um, okay, now I understand how to do a pandemic better. Uh, no, I, I'm actually no. pretty nervous about the next one, whatever. I would say, again, be. as a historian, this, this doesn't surprise me. We didn't really like, where are all the great books about the Spanish flu? Well, they don't exist because it just sucked and it was horrible. <laughs> and people were like, we're going to move on. We're going to go party and drink through the 20s. And yeah. that's what's happening with COVID. And, you know, it, it's funny. I read in another book about the history of the plague, and I can't remember its its title right now. But, you know, when the plague was spreading through Europe. It, it had decimated Europe, but there was this place called England, which was an island which didn't have plague yet. And, and they had a, a policy of quarantining boats. So boats would come in and that was the vector for bad things. And, and be, because of the, the, the time it took to cross the English Channel or wherever they were coming from, uh, they, they, you would have presented with the illness by, when you were on the boat. So you knew that you could stop the disease at the borders of England by just not letting the boats land on shore. And what happened? The Chamber of Commerce of England was like, this is messing up trade. Yeah, yeah. And we think that we should do away with the quarantine restrictions because we're gonna make less money. And after quarantining for, I think like four or five months and not getting the plague, the quarantines then broke down and then England died. Same thing happened with cholera. Same thing happened in the US with yellow fever. And it's the, the, chamber, <laughs> the chamber of Commerce. Though, I mean, there are real... I don't know about the England example. They really are true trade-offs if you shut everything down. But uh, humans are humans. Uh, we are mm-hmm. we are large hominids. We're not that different. Yeah. Than we were back. Yeah. Then. And and the, and the Chamber of Commerce does not always have your best interest at heart. Uh, they have commerce. <laughs> commerce is best <laughs> at heart. Uh, well, you know, Adam, uh, I, I feel like we could talk honestly, and ramble for a long time. Uh, but we're asking a lot of my audience. They've been here. I know. I, I'm sorry. I apologize in advance. You basically got to hear me and Scott, and this could go on for several hours more. Um, but uh, I, this was really fun. And again, anyone who's listening, Adam Robbins' podcast, Bedside Rounds, is a national treasure uh, where you can learn all sorts of things that you didn't want to know about the intricacies of medicine and what it's like to live through um, pustules emerging from all over <laughs> your body uh, when you didn't want them there. And uh, and you should definitely check it out. You've got a really awesome one, I remember, on the tuberculum uh, bacillus uh, because tuberculosis is one of, actually one of like the modern medicines like really coming into itself and understanding it's probably the most important disease in the history of medicine. Yeah, TB has influenced and touched everything we've done. So um, you know, go check that out if you're looking for it. Uh, I have no idea what the no- episode number is. So you have to scroll through his whole feed until, until you find- I apologize to all your listeners. <laughs> uh, anyway, thank you so much for, for, having, uh, for being on the show. And uh, you know, I'll, I'll, I assume we'll 
do something again in the future. Maybe we'll write that oh, book. Maybe that we we'll write about. a book yeah, when, when both of us uh, stop being so obscenely busy. You, awesome. You're doing exciting things, Scott. I can't wait to see what happens next. Oh my God. And we, and we have tried not to mention the name that rhymes with spim spoff uh, today. And, uh, and, and I think we did that successfully. So, uh, so thank you everyone. And from Pokey Bear LLC in Denver, Colorado, this was Scott Carney Investigates with Adam Rodman.